0: I hope to my life!
1: Welcome, one and all, to episode 44 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. the Beretta Cast, the podcast covering all kinds of issues in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, and social issues. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. There exists a pretty large body of serious literature on the relationship between faith and reason, where faith refers to religious faith, the so-called New Atheists have also said a thing or two about it. But apart from that, as I said, there's a body of serious literature too. I was going to say there's no controversy about what reason is, so today I'm going to be looking at faith. But as I was planning on saying that, it occurred to me that, of course, there there is a bit of controversy, and we could spend some time discussing what reason is too. There's no uniformity, really. But in any event, in this episode, I'm going to be looking primarily at the question of exactly what faith really is. I will say something about the relationship between faith and reason, but only as it bears on on a discussion of the nature of faith itself. What does a person mean when they say, I have faith in God? What about when they say, I have a religious faith, or when someone says, I have faith that these things are true, or I know this based on faith? What about when one person says to another, you can do it, I have faith in you. How about when a skeptic says, can you really trust faith? Does the word carry the same meaning in each of these circumstances? When you say that you have faith in something, are you making a claim about something existing? Perhaps it means you're not sure, so you employ faith rather than reason. That's the kind of territory that I'll be covering in this episode. In a way, this episode is really a bit of a self-indulgent rant. I heard something that annoyed me, so I decided then and there, in the heat of the moment, to write a podcast episode to right the wrong that I had witnessed. That may not always be the right way to approach things, but I'm in too deep now. I've written the thing, and that's what I've done. Uh, Maybe I'll learn from, from my mistakes, maybe I won't. But in any event, let's get started. To get the ball rolling, maybe I should say a little bit about what not to expect in this episode. Although obviously the notion of faith has a lot of theological attachments, I won't be talking very much about theology. Is faith a gift? How does our faith connect us to God and so on? That being said, I will be talking about something that does exist in theology, namely faith in God, but I won't be doing so for theological reasons. The broad area of philosophy that I'm looking at today is an overlap between philosophy of religion and epistemology, which is the study of beliefs, how they are formed, what beliefs count as knowledge, how we get to know things, and and so on, things like that. In a very modern history, a new caricature of faith has come about. According to this view, faith has nothing, nothing at all, to do with reason other than being the opposite of reason. So if you've got faith, then you're literally believing something without reasons or evidence of any kind. One way of making sure that you can speak of faith this way, of course, is just to decide for yourself that this is what the word faith actually means. That way, whenever you say people who have faith in God have absolutely no reasons to believe that, that God exists, and they know it, you can easily defend yourself against anyone who disagrees, Just tell them that whatever anyone else in the world might mean by the word faith, you've just chosen to use the word faith to mean this. And if anyone else uses it in another way, well, that's their business, but that doesn't make you you wrong because you can define the term however you like. Now, if you're an atheist and you think that Glenn's just being silly, unfair and uncharitable, well, then I'm setting up a straw man so that I can create this ridiculous image of atheists as people who use... You know, silly self-serving lines of reasoning like this, when actually in the real world they don't. Here's an exchange that took place between Richard Dawkins and a young man who attended his speaking event recently in Lynchburg, Virginia, in the United States. At the end of the talk, there was a Q and a session. and i'll I'll just I'll play it for you. Here's the way that the discussion panned out.
2: My first question would be, do you draw a distinction in between blind faith and reasonable faith?
1: Okay. Um, is there
3: a distinction, do I draw a distinction between blind faith and reasonable faith? No.
2: It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that you say that because um, just th- through my, my own studies, through, through my, uh, my investigation into this matter, I have come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as proof Right. that uh, there is reasonable faith and, and there is blind faith. When I, uh, when I drop a ball uh, on, you know, to the ground on earth, it's, it's reasonable for me to believe that the ball will fall the very next time that I drop it, but I can't prove it just as I can't prove that you exist. Yes. I believe that you exist based on a reasonable faith because I can see you, because I can hear you, but our senses can sometimes deceive us. People on cocaine feel bugs in their skin, but that doesn't make it real. Uh, people that are taking hallucinogens see things, but it doesn't make it real. Okay. So I think it's interesting that you deny the, the line between reasonable faith... Yes,
3: I mean, I think we agree. I think we're just using words in a different way. Okay. I, th- I think okay. it's, a, it's a semantic thing. Um, so- something like, um, when, you, when you drop a ball, it falls, and when you drop another ball, it falls, and when you drop another ball, it falls. Um, I don't think I would wish to use the word faith for your belief that the next time you drop it, it will fall. I don't think that's what I would use the word faith for. I think that's, that's, that's normal science. I mean, that's based upon uh, Newton's laws. It's based upon a tremendous body of theory. It's based upon uh, scientific evidence. So I would not use the word reasonable faith the way you're using it. It seems to be you're using reasonable faith for um, basing beliefs upon upon evidence. So if if you're using reasonable faith to mean belief based upon evidence, then there's no disagreement. We're just using words in a different way. I define faith as as belief that's not based upon evidence.
1: This saith Richard Dawkins. Now, I didn't doctor the audio clip to make him sound silly. That's genuinely what took place. Look it up on YouTube. It's it's on there. This is really what was said. And it obviously wasn't just Dawkins who approved of this way of thinking. You heard the the Extended laughter and applause that he got from his fans when he said that it was clearly a view that they held. But I think that the ordinary language experience of pretty much everyone who speaks English militates against this defining trick. Try to imagine a world where everyone defined faith the way that Richard Dawkins says that he does. Now, I say that he says that he does because I think in everyday life he doesn't really define faith that way. But imagine that in this make believe world, I was attending a job interview. My wife said to me, Glenn, don't worry, you'll do fine. I have faith in you. Now, in that world, I would be offended. I'd say, what do you mean you've got faith in me? Do you mean that you have absolutely no evidence, no good reasons at all to think that I'm likely to do well? You have to resort to faith? Now, in the real world, if I responded that way, then my wife would think that I was badly misunderstanding her, in much the same way, incidentally, that Dawkins' comments here badly misunderstand faith. Or imagine this make-believe world again for a moment, and imagine that we're familiar with ancient languages, and we know that the verb trust is the same verb for have faith, or at any rate, that that the language is interchangeable. Imagine that I got the job that I was being interviewed for, and the head of the hiring panel said, Well, Glenn, I've read your CV, and based on what I see there, I trust you'll do a good job. End quote. Or if you don't know about other languages, just imagine that he said, I have great faith in your abilities based on what I've seen in your CV. Now, in that imaginary world, uh, where everyone defined faith the way that Richard Dawkins just defined faith, again, I would be offended. I'd say, Wow, my CV is that bad? It doesn't give you any reasons to think that I'm I'm going to do a good job. You have to trust me based on faith. You've got to ignore the evidence. You've got to just blindly hope that I'll do a good job. But of course, in the real world, if I said that, they'd look at this little outburst of mine and they'd think maybe they shouldn't hire me after all. I can't even speak English. We see these everyday examples and we get the point. Dawkins would get the point too when it comes to everyday examples. But suddenly... When the subject is religion, normal language flies out the window for him, and faith now suddenly conjures up blind, stupid believing on the basis of absolutely nothing other than a wish. The fact is, D- Richard Dawkins never, I suspect, uses the word faith that way in normal conversation, or at least if he does, it's because he's trained himself to do so by using it that way habitually in his attacks on religion. But this just isn't what faith is as my two everyday examples suggest, that isn't what faith really is. What's more, in the literature on theology, philosophy of religion, and related things, the term faith is almost never used that way. It doesn't mean believing something for no good reason, or at least if it's used that way, the writer would at least be aware that they were using it in a way that was exceptional. Here's just a very short snippet from a short talk Given by John Lennox on faith and reason, where he gives what I think is a fairly mainstream account of what faith is.
0: When we say we have faith in something, we trust it, we believe in it, the next logical question is, what reasons have you got? What evidence have you got for believing it? So if I say God is the creator of the universe, you are perfectly justified in saying, what reasons have you got? So that We need to distinguish faith from blind faith. What makes this discussion very complex is that many of the new atheists regard all faith as blind faith. But that is absolute nonsense. A man's faith in his wife is not blind. I even discussed this with Richard Dawkins and he quite rightly gave me many reasons why he has faith in his wife. That is, we immediately see that that kind of faith can have reasons. It is evidence-based faith, but it is nonetheless faith. So that to say that all faith is blind faith is simply wrong in using faith in its general context, but it's also wrong using faith in its specifically religious context.
1: Now, notice that Professor Lennox doesn't make Dawkins' mistake of defining faith in terms of whether or not a person ought to have faith or whether or not they've got good reasons or good evidence. Dawkins basically defines faith as holding to beliefs that you've got no reason to hold. You really shouldn't hold them. Lennox doesn't make the reverse error of saying that faith is had only on the basis of good reasons. You might have faith for bad reasons or you might have faith for no reason at all. I think this is basically the right way to think about faith, the way that Lennox has just uh, described it. We can call this trusting faith. So you trust that something is the case. Now, it leaves completely open the question of whether or not your trust is well-placed. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Now, this is only one way of thinking about faith. Here, we form certain beliefs for certain reasons. And because of those reasons, we place trust. We commit to certain beliefs, and more importantly, Uh, In the case of religious faith, we commit to the object of those beliefs, namely God. But there are other ways of thinking about faith. If I heard the phrase propositional faith for the first time, I would have thought that the conception of faith that I just outlined fits that phrase pretty well, because it's all about believing propositions, right? Right. We arrive at certain propositions for certain reasons, and on the basis of those reasons, we embrace the belief, we place trust. However, in his article, The Dimensions of Faith and the Demands of Reason, philosopher Robert Audi uses that phrase, propositional faith, in a somewhat different way, a way that I wasn't quite ready for. It took me a few seconds to get my head around it. Here's what he says. I quote, if I have faith that God loves humanity, I have a certain positive disposition toward the proposition that this is so. This disposition is something more than hope, but it does not imply belief, though some philosophers have spoken loosely of degrees of belief in such a way that if one so much as takes or even presupposes a proposition to have any significant chance of truth, then one thereby, thereby has some degree of belief of it. Propositional faith is, to be sure, incompatible with believing that God does not exist, but that is a different point. Because of the positive way in which it is more than hope, it is also incompatible with a pervasive or dominating doubt that God exists, although it can coexist with some degree of doubt or even with a tendency to have moments of predominant doubt. End quote. Now, when I first read that, I admit that it didn't fully make sense. How can you have faith in someone or something and yet not actually believe that it even exists? But Audi isn't alone in thinking of faith this way. A philosopher of religion as great as Richard Swinburne offers some similar thoughts. He says, and I quote, It is not necessary in order to pursue the goals of a theistic religion to believe that there is a God rather than no God, only to believe that it is more probable that the goals of religion will be attained by acting on the assumption that there is a God of a certain kind than by acting on any incompatible assumption of a rival creed. This will constitute putting one's trust in God. I give an analogy to show how someone may put his trust in something which, on balance, he does not believe to exist. A man in prison may be told that he will be rescued by the big chief from the outer yard of the prison if he can get there at night. On balance, the prisoner does not believe this rumour. He does not think there is any such big chief, but the rumour has some plausibility and the prisoner has no other hope of escaping. He believes that it is far more probable that he will attain his goal of escaping by acting on the assumption that the big chief exists than by acting on any other assumption. So he steals a file, files away at the bar of his cell and squeezes through the cell window to get into the outer yard of the prison. He is liable to be punished when all of this is discovered, unless by then he has succeeded in escaping. The prisoner is not inappropriately described as putting his trust in the big chief. Of course, uh, Swinburne goes on, if we pursue the Christian way... If we pursue the Christian way, while believing that it is more probable than not that there is no God, our prayer will implicitly have a tentative character. O oh God, forgive me, will implicitly be short for, O oh God, if you exist, forgive me. Some philosophers consider that kind of prayer absurd. I do not find this kind of abs- kind of prayer in the least absurd. It was the kind of prayer uttered by the Father who asked Jesus to cure his paralytic son, if you are able to do anything. Jesus indeed asked for more in the way of something like trust, but was satisfied with the Father's tentative, I believe, help my unbelief. Surely a good God respects honesty. Weak belief, however inevitably, makes it harder to pursue the Christian way than does stronger belief. For the stronger the belief, the more probable the believer believes the pursuit of the Christian way will attain its goal. The stronger a person's belief in the Christian creed, the stronger would need to be any purpose to pursue rival goals provided by temptations in order to deter him from pursuing the Christian way. Strong belief is a great help, but weak belief plus total dedication. Will enable us to pursue the Christian way and develop that character which will fit us for heaven. I find it implausible to suppose that a good God would refuse heaven to anyone with the right character whose creedal beliefs, though not his own fault, oh, sorry, not through his own fault, were weak. End quote. This account of faith, initially at least, throws up a couple of red flags for me. First, from a theological point of view, some of my Protestant comrades might raise an eyebrow over the thought that God accepts us because of our character, as Swinburne puts it. You'll miss what's being said here if you allow yourself to get snagged on that idea. I don't know what Richard Swinburne believes about salvation by grace versus salvation by works, about whether or not God picks good people to save, but even if you're a hardcore Calvinist, you can still appreciate the point here. By thinking of it like this, Genuine faith consists in genuine commitment, even though it isn't always accompanied by mental comprehension and certainty. The other quirk with this view of faith is that it may seem indistinguishable from mere hopefulness, perhaps even wishful thinking. That being said, This may be just because genuine faith in people or circumstances does actually involve a degree of hopefulness and wishful thinking, or wishing at least. Even when you have some reason to put your faith in, say, a lifeguard or a surgeon, you still wish and hope very much that they will save you. You could probably come up with all sorts of examples where someone puts their faith in a state of affairs, not actually knowing for certain whether or not that state of affairs is real. Maybe you're lost in the wilderness, in unforgiving terrain and weather conditions. You know it's possible that there are others out there because you've heard from a number of people that campers often pass through this area, but you can't see anyone just now, and there may not be. Still, you cry out for help, knowing that there's no other hope that someone will hear you. If you don't cry out, you may as well just lay down and die. In a similar way to the prisoner hoping to be rescued by the big chief, This person out in the wilderness is putting a degree of faith in an unspecified passerby who may be there. What this and all relevantly similar examples share is the fact that the person in question is acting as though a certain state of affairs exists. They don't disbelieve that this state of affairs exists. They are trusting that it does and living in such a way that if said state of affairs does exist, then they are being prudent. You could say they're living out Pascal's wager. They're doing the rational thing, all things considered. Now, if you're not familiar with Pascal's wager, then very briefly, Blaise Pascal said that if you're going to take a gamble on the God question, then you're really better off betting that God is there and living accordingly because the consequences of being wrong and God doesn't exist, well, that's nowhere near as bad as the consequences of being an atheist and God does exist. So you should really live as though God exists. Swinburne's point illustrates to us is that faith is as much about doing as it is about believing. It's not simply about holding propositions, but taking a certain stance. As Alvin Plantinga also says, and I quote: "Coming to faith includes more than a change of opinion. It also, and crucially, includes a change of heart, a change in affection, in what one loves and hates, approves and disdains, seeks and avoids." End quote. As a very brief aside, this is a source of frequent mischaracterization of, of a Protestant understanding of justification by faith in the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone. It's this kind of faith that is meant. Not just abstract mental acceptance of, of some beliefs, but it's living in trust. In the disputes over faith in works, this has been dubbed faith That works. But of course, the kind of faith that Swinburne is talking about, whether you're trusting that someone will rescue you from prison or find you in the wilderness, certainly doesn't need to be without very good reasons and confidence. If you know full well that every night the big chief arrives and rescues people from the prison yard, and you're trusting that he will do the same for you, then you're still placing faith in him. In fact, you're probably placing more faith than if you had only heard about him via a distant rumor. Sure, we talk about people taking a bigger leap of faith when the evidence is is lacking, but that just means that the faith is riskier when it is grounded in poorer reasons. But at very least, in Swinburne's example, you'd need some reason to believe that the big chief was coming. It would make no sense to simply make the idea up out of thin air and try to escape by getting out into the prison yard. That would be nothing more than a delusion crafted by you with no basis at all outside of your own desires. Now, all that being said, I have an issue with Swinburne's conception of faith because it seems to me more like mere hope. And in fact, given the threefold division in the New Testament of faith, hope, and love, assuming they're all meant to refer to different things, it's hard to see how Swinburne's portrayal of faith in the sense outlined here would really amount to anything more than hope. What's more, given that it is a pragmatic or prudent Pascal's Wager type phenomenon, it's not what people have in mind when they talk about beliefs that are grounded in faith, or faith as a set of beliefs when they talk about the supposed contrast between faith and reason. Going back to what Robert Audi said, faith really does need to be stronger than mere hope or wishing in order to distinguish it from those things. He said that you don't have to believe in something, but he did say that you have to take a positive attitude towards a claim. And he also let slip that some philosophers do call this belief, because if you have some inclination to believe a thing, then, well, to some extent, you believe it. Well, never mind philosophers. I'll just say that this is the most normal way that people use the word believe. If they're half inclined to believe that something is true, then they won't say that they don't believe it. They're likely to say, well, I sort of believe it. I kind of believe it. I believe it partly. And they have weak faith in what they've heard. Historically, faith has been understood in terms of things that are believed to be true. Faith is trust in a person on the basis of some claim believed to be true. This is clear, for example, in John Calvin's definition of faith. John Calvin says, and I quote, now, we shall have a proper definition of faith if we say that it is a steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence toward us, which being founded upon the truth of the gratuitous promise in Christ is both revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, you might not accept that Calvin's rational basis for faith was adequate. Maybe you just don't believe that there is a Holy Spirit who can reveal the the divine benevolence to us. And there's no divine benevolence because there's no divine, according to you. But the point is just that faith, according to Calvin, is our trust in God's loving disposition towards us in response to a phenomenon. In this case, the phenomenon of God revealing this truth to us. You might personally doubt that this revelation has occurred, and say that really Calvin was just engaging in wishful thinking. Okay, fine. Not fine. I think you're wrong. But okay, fine. That's not how he construed faith. And that's what I'm trying to show. What I'm trying to show is that what Christian thinkers have meant by faith is nothing like what Richard Dawkins referred to. For Calvin, it wasn't just believing in hope when there are no actual facts of the matter that present themselves to you. It's not the kind of stuff that Dawkins calls faith. In fact, although Calvin and the Calvinist tradition has kind of a reputation for not having much time for natural theology, that is, arguing for theological truths from non-theological truths, John Calvin nonetheless thought that truths about God are reflected in the evidence. In his famous work, in fact the same work that previous quote came from the Institutes of the Christian Religion, for example... Calvin referred to the orderliness and the beauty of the universe as markers of the glory of God, calling them, and I quote, a mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible, end quote. He calls features of the natural world evidences that declare his wonderful wisdom and, quote again, signs of divinity. So while Calvin thought that the Christian faith is an inward work of the Holy Spirit, he certainly thought that some of the things that moderns today associate with religious faith—belief in God, God's wisdom, God's power—actually do have evidence for them. Now, I don't want to pretend that no Christian, even an influential and important Christian, has ever construed faith in a way that makes it contrary to reason. But I do want to insist that this is not the norm. That being said, One name that stands out as a person often seen as advocating faith without reason is that of Soren Kierkegaard. It's become popular. Well, okay, I use the word popular in a very idiosyncratic way. Talking about Kierkegaard is never going to be popular. But among people who have heard a little about Kierkegaard and who don't think much about don't think much of what they do know of him, it's become popular to speak of him as advocating a leap of faith. In fact, if you do an internet search for that phrase, leap of faith, along with Kierkegaard's name, if you can spell it, you'll find dozens, probably even hundreds of articles and blog posts written by Christians and non-Christians saying that this is Kierkegaard's phrase that he used to describe the way faith works. Faith is a leap in the absence of reasons. You reason your way steadily from one fact to another. That's how reason works. But the way faith works is by shutting your eyes and leaping in hope. What you might notice as well, in addition to the fact that many people attribute that phrase, leap of faith, to Kierkegaard, is that they never quote him when they do so. They never even provide a footnote to any of his works where he used that phrase. He never used it. He spoke of a leap often enough, but never a leap of faith. Faith is not the stuff that just leaps into the darkness and hopes for the best. No, Kierkegaard, as a number of his commentators have pointed out, didn't talk about a leap of faith in the sense that by faith we leap. Instead, he spoke about what we can call a leap to faith. Now, what's that distinction all about? Well, listen, we leap, and the place that we end up is in the Christian faith. So why did he call it a leap? Well, he called it a leap because it is a paradigm shift. That is, it's a move from one vantage point to another. It's a qualitative transformation. To use his own words, or at least a translation of them, he says that it is, quote, qualitative transformation, a total character transformation in time, just as qualitative as the change from not being to being, which is birth, anything which is merely a development of what man is originally is not essentially Christian, end quote. That's why he called it a leap. It's a radical move away from one perspective on reality to another. But it was not, in Kierkegaard's view, an ultimately irrational leap in spite of the widely held view of him. As Kierkegaard scholar David Emery Mercer observes, and I quote, many believe that, that Kierkegaard rejects reason and consequently that faith and his leap are irrational, end quote. But there is evidence, and then there's evidence. And this is actually a matter of some disagreement among philosophers of religion. Alvin Plantinga rejects the need for evidence when, it, when coming to faith, on the grounds that one can directly encounter the truth about God by virtue of our belief-forming structures responding to creation in the way that God designed them to. On a slightly different note, others decry the need for evidence because of the spiritual encounter that one can have with the living God. Someone like Trent Doherty, on the other hand, says, What do you mean you believe because of experience and not evidence? Experience is evidence. Whether or not you consider Kierkegaard to be a person who saw faith as grounded in evidence or not will depend on how you construe evidence. If you open the category of evidence up wide enough to include everything that counts as the truth-aimed reason to believe, including personal experience, then in fact he does believe that the leap to faith is closely connected to evidence. When Mercer, the guy I quoted earlier, sums up Kierkegaard's stance by saying, and I quote, the individual becomes a believer not because of the evidence but because of the encounter, end quote, you're justified in thinking, but surely... An encounter with another person counts as evidence. It's a reason to believe. For Kierkegaard, the idea was not that proofs or evidence aren't out there to be seen. His position was that these things are ineffective in grounding faith. He used the example of a person who can prove immortality, which he unfortunately equated with immortality of the soul. Now, I'll quote from him at length here, because I think the overall idea here is a, is a good picture of what he thought about faith and reason. And I quote, Take the thought of immortality, for example. The person who knows how to prove the immortality of the soul, but who is not himself convinced by it and does not live by it, will always be anxious. Despite all his proofs, he shrinks from the truth of immortality. He deceives both himself and others by pretending that the proof is enough. In the process of trying to prove immortality, he forgets immortality, since immortality is precisely what he fears. He remains anxious and is thus forced to seek yet a further understanding of what it means to believe in the soul's immortality. Without inwardness, an adherent of the most rigid orthodoxy may be demonic. He knows it all. He genuflects before the holy he is ceremoniously flawless he speaks of meeting before the throne of god and knows how many times to bow he knows everything but only like the person who can prove a mathematical proposition when the letters are abc but not when the letters are def he is nonetheless anxious especially whenever he hears something that he is not exact that is not exactly the same as his belief he resembles the philosopher who has discovered a new proof of the immortality of the soul and then, in peril of his life, cannot produce the proof because he has forgotten his notebooks. What is it that both of them lack? It is certitude. With what industrious zeal, with what sacrifice of time, diligence, and writing materials the theologians and philosophers in our time have spent to prove God's existence, yet to the same degree that the excellence of those proofs increase Certainty declines. What is it that such individuals lack? Again, it is inwardness. End quote. You can see just what Kierkegaard is getting at. It's not that the proofs or the evidence aren't real or aren't good. But proof, he thought, wasn't enough to ground faith. Faith is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It's what he calls inwardness, that heartfelt relationship, that love and commitment. But let's not forget some of the other things that Kierkegaard also said. It's true he described the grounds of faith in a way that some of us would consider to count as reasons to believe. He, at other times, describes parts of Christian faith as not being in accordance with reason at all. He has an article called Faith, the Matchless Lock of Logic, where he said that, and I quote, Faith protests against every attempt to approach Christ by means of historical facts. End quote. He says that he says there that the proofs of Christ's divinity, things like miracles or his resurrection, are not in harmony with our reason, but show that believing in Christ's works is primarily a matter of faith. His stance, therefore, seems to have been that we depend not on one sort of phenomenon, namely historical evidence, but on a different type of phenomenon, namely a personal encounter. But even if... Kierkegaard's view on faith was one of irrationality and eschewing reason. It would be a view that stood out for being exceptional, not normal. Now, he wasn't alone. Of course, he wasn't alone. Karl Barth's name, Karl Barth, Karl Barth's name, could be mentioned here as someone famous for opposing arguments for Christian belief as well. He lived in a time when it was thought by many in the academic establishment, thanks to the New Testament criticism of Strauss, Bultmann, etc., that any trust in the accuracy of the biblical account of Jesus was now simply unfounded, and that responsible historiography cried out against such trust. Now, thankfully, things have changed in, in biblical scholarship, and the likes of Strauss and Bultmann wouldn't find many friends today, but part of the reaction to that atmosphere uh, in which Barth found himself was for Orthodox Christians to retreat from evidence into a kind of fideism, the will to believe on divine authority in the absence of evidence. Now, this must never be confused with the idea that all religious claims are equally in accord with the facts of history. As Barth scholar uh, Nigel Biggar explains, and I quote, Barthes' och- I'm never sure if it's Barth or Bart. I've heard people say both, so you'll hear me kind of munching them together. Barth's orthodoxy might be described as postmodern, in that he makes no attempt to justify his dogmatic assumptions in terms of logical possibility, common experience, or historical evidence. But this is not because he has abandoned all claim to truth for the Christian story and wishes merely to assert its democratic right to a voice alongside all the other voices clamoring for attention in the ideological marketplace. but believes passionately in the truth of the orthodox Christian story. He believes that God is a living reality and that the Incarnation happened. But he does not believe that the reality of God or of the Incarnation can be philosophically proven or historically demonstrated, in part because apprehension of such things requires not only enlightenment of the mind, but first and foremost conversion of the depths of the will and in part because it is not the business of dogmatics to presume to demonstrate that god to presume to demonstrate god but rather through both what it says and how it says it to clear the way for god to manifest himself so he definitely thought that the christian faith was historically true at times but sounds promisingly like an like an historical apologist when he says and i quote the meaning of his deity, the only true deity in the New Testament sense, cannot be gathered from any notion of supreme absolute non worldly being. It can be learned only from what took place in Christ. Otherwise, its mystery would be an arbitrary mystery of our imagining, a false mystery. He also said, perhaps even more strongly, And I quote, The atonement is history. To know it, we must teach it as such. To think of it, we must think of it as such. To speak of it, we must tell it as history. To try and grasp it as supra historical or non-historical truth is not to grasp it at all. End quote. But in spite of believing that the tenets of the Christian faith are objectively and historically true, and in spite of believing that the content of our faith in the deity of Christ is only known on the basis of historical events. The context in that passage that I just quoted makes it very clear that this is what he means. But had little time for trying to demonstrate that the content of our faith is true. That is not, he insisted, the basis of faith. God's self-revelation is the basis of faith. On reading examples like Kierkegaard and like Bart, and considering the claim that theirs was a faith not grounded in reason because it was grounded in an experienced revelation of an encounter, I'm reminded of a movie. I'm, re- well, I'm, re- I'm kind of reminded of Carl Sagan's book, Contact, but really I'm not reminded of the book. I've never read it. I'm reminded of the 1997 movie, Contact. For those who haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, I'm about to give away the climax. Here's the story so far. Astronomer Ali Arraway played by Jodie Foster and her small team, suspected of many of pursuing science fiction rather than fact, monitor the heavens for signals from outer space. And then one day it happens. They start receiving signals. What's more, those signals comprise coded instructions to make a great machine, where a person sits in a kind of cockpit, which is suspended above what looks like a basketball hoop structure below. The cockpit falls through the hoop and is caught at the bottom of the machine. So they construct this machine. Dr. Arroway sits in the cockpit. The switch is flicked and the basketball hoop becomes a kind of portal, like the opening of a wormhole in space. Ellie is transported at a rapid speed to a faraway place where she speaks to a non-human being, an alien who appears in the guise of her deceased father, explaining that this was a form that she would recognize and listen to. After a brief conversation with this being, suddenly she's zapped back into her cockpit, emerging from the other side of the hoop and being caught at the bottom. What a phenomenal experience, she thinks. She is now vindicated. She was right. There is other life out there. But to all observers outside the machine, nothing happened. Well, nothing interesting anyway. The cockpit dropped straight through the hoop and landed at the bottom. That's it. I want you to listen to the scene where Dr. Arraway is challenged to give up her story.
3: Dr. Arroway, you come to us with no evidence, no record, no artifacts, only a story that, to put it mildly, strains credibility. Over half a trillion dollars were spent. Dozens of lives were lost. Are you really going to sit there and tell us we should just
1: take this all on faith? Please answer the question, doctor.
2: Is it possible that it didn't happen? Yes. As a scientist, I must concede that I must volunteer that.
1: Wait a minute, let me get this straight. You admit that you have absolutely no physical evidence to back up your story. Yes. You admit that you very well may have hallucinated this whole thing. Yes. You admit that if you were in our position, you would respond with exactly the same degree of incredulity and skepticism. Yes. Then why don't you simply withdraw your testimony and concede that this journey to the center of the galaxy, in fact, never took place. Because I can't.
2: I had an experience. I can't prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real.
1: It's a bit like something out of The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. She went, as it were, to Narnia. There was no sense in her denying it. It would be silly for her to do that. She'd seen it, she'd heard it, she'd smelt, tasted, touched, as it were, but nobody else saw the evidence. Now you tell me. Obviously, she has faith that these events really took place. Is she abandoning reason? Is she giving up on evidence? Well, I don't think so. Is she unreasonable to believe that these events occurred? Again, I I don't think so. This is because of the experience that she had, but it's also because of the context of that experience. They were looking for alien life. They received signals from outer space, signals that actually made sense. Then she had this experience, which is best explained in that context. Her experience was consistent with this backdrop. Okay, enough with the movie comparison. But of course, here I'm talking about trust that is brought about through some immediate encounter. That's only one kind of reason that a person might have for faith. Another is the kind of reflection and argumentation that philosophers of religion do, in conjunction with observers of history or science. That's the kind of reason or evidence for faith that John Lennox was talking about in the clip that I played early in this episode. But notice that the meaning of faith doesn't change in either case. All that is different in those two kinds of scenario is the type of reason or evidence that a person has in support of faith. In neither of those cases could faith be defined as just believing something with no good reason or evidence. And of course, once we turn to those Christians over the ages who have engaged in any sort of apologetics, any rational defense of Christian truth, we immediately see that faith is not construed as an act of belief contrary to reason or in the absence of evidence. Let me pick just a couple of examples from roughly opposite ends of the Protestant-Catholic spectrum. John Locke isn't typically thought of as primarily an apologist. He wasn't primarily, but he was one of the key thinkers of the Enlightenment. He was a Christian of sorts, albeit with a heretical doctrine of God. He was a Unitarian, and he happens to be one of my favorite philosophers, so I'm going to use him. And in fact, he does offer arguments for Christianity, writing an entire work called The Reasonableness of Christianity. Locke called faith an assurance that doesn't leave room for doubt. It is grounded in a revelation from God himself. That's kind of what Calvin said too. But Locke is different. He says, how do you know that it's a revelation from God? Well, he says, and I quote, our ascent is, can rationally be no higher than the evidence of its being a revelation and that this is the meaning of the expressions it is delivered in, end quote. So you need reasons to believe that it is a revelation and you need to know what it means. That, that's Those are the conditions he lays down there. There are truths that Locke calls above reason, that we may never have experienced, but so long as we have reasons to trust God's revelation, we may nonetheless believe in. This is the kind of thing that he says you believe in faith. Things like the claim that the dead will rise one day. But as for what faith is, Locke said, and I quote, Faith is nothing but a firm assent of the mind, which, if it be regulated, as is our duty, cannot be afforded to anything but upon good reason, and so cannot be opposite to it. End quote. That's a very strong claim about the role of reason, perhaps even stronger than some apologists. He says, No good faith is had without good reasons. The degree to which you have faith, he said, should never exceed the evidence. So clearly he didn't think faith just meant blind faith. Thomas Aquinas, I'm going to the other end of the spectrum now, Thomas Aquinas has probably informed the Roman Catholic understanding of faith more than any other person has. In his view, there were what he called preambles to faith. These are the things that prepare a person for Christian faith, things that can be rationally demonstrated to a reasonable person. Aquinas here included the existence of God, God's goodness, the unity of God. But in principle, what can be included here is anything that a person believes can be rationally demonstrated or for which a cogent rational case can be made. So in principle, we could include things here like God's creation of the universe out of nothing or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as long as you believe that a case can be made for those things. But beyond the preambles of faith, there is a category of things that Aquinas called the mysteries of faith, things that you can't necessarily demonstrate. Now, things that you can't, not necessarily, things that you just can't demonstrate to an unbelieving person, but which are based on preambles. So you have things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and so on. These things are not without reasons. They are supported by the preambles of the faith. But those reasons are supplemented by internal helps like the Holy Spirit. Crucially, though, the mysteries of the faith, according to Aquinas, are not contrary to reason. And if anything is contrary to reason, it is false. Accordingly, in his work Summa Contra Gentes, Aquinas stresses that philosophical argumentation, reason, is a vital tool for spreading, maintaining, and defending Christian faith. Lastly, I think the writers of the New Testament make it fairly clear that they do not think of faith as a kind of groundless belief without any reason or evidence either. The Apostle Peter wrote to the early churches telling them to, and I quote, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. End quote. Now, you can't make a defense and give reasons for what you believe if Christian faith means believing that Christianity is true without any real reasons or evidence. The last person I'm going to quote, I think it is anyway, the last person I'm going to quote at some length in this episode is kind of somewhere between. Locke and Aquinas, C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes in his work, Mere Christianity, and I quote, My reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and clap their horrible mask over my face, A mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke, and I'm afraid that they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination, my emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for it. I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment where, when there is bad news, or he is in trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment where he wants a woman, or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair, some moment in fact at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I'm not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I'm talking about moments where a mere mood rises up against it. Now, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things Your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change, whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue, unless you teach your moods where they get off. You can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Quote. Lewis's point is simple. Faith is based on reasons, and in order to maintain faith, you maintain your assurances because of those reasons, and you resist the non-cognitive factors that threaten to sway your reasonable belief. That being said, what I am not saying is that once you have enough reasons, you have faith, in any sense, where you could be called a person of faith. That is where the likes of Kierkegaard were really right wherever else I may disagree with them. And I dare say, I think that's probably where most of the Christians that I've referred to today would agree with Kierkegaard. I think the arguments for theism and for Christianity are good. I think they're very good. I think they've been presented to a large number of atheists who, on an an intellectual level, should have accepted them. They now have reasons to believe. And if they had faith, it would be supported by good reasons. But they don't have faith. They don't have religious faith. Faith in this sense is an act of the will. It's like taking hold of the life preserver that's been thrown to you. You can know all the excellent reasons why you should believe that there is a life preserver or a lifeguard and why it might even be good for you to grab hold of it. But the act of faith, the act of trust that the lifesaver will in fact keep you alive, is when you decide to grab hold of it. You may make that decision after reflecting on reasons, using your reason, in conjunction with your immediate experiences, but your reasons and your experience are not faith. That's important to stress so as not to give the wrong impression. I can't speak for other religions, but in the Christian outlook, pretty much any flavor of Christianity that I can think of, faith in this sense has to do with having a saving relationship with God and not with knowing that there are good reasons to affirm God's existence or the resurrection of Jesus. But when we look at what I would call the propositional aspects of that faith, believing that God is real, believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and so on, the point is only that it's an open question whether or not your faith is well supported by reasons. To define faith as blind is at the height of linguistic slipperiness. It's about as fair as me saying, I don't like science. I'm not going to listen to scientists anymore. You see, I just define science as witchcraft. So any time a person says they're being scientific, they're a witch. And who wants to listen to the ramblings of a witch? I've said enough. Maybe even too much. That's what happens when you write a podcast episode for the wrong reasons. This is getting long. Maybe it's getting boring. So I'll draw things to a close. What I think is crystal clear, based on the evidence is that if Richard Dawkins defines faith as believing things for no reason and with no evidence, then Christians in general don't have faith. But since Christians in general do have faith, it's Dawkins and co. who need to actually start making a good faith effort to understand those at whom they launch their rhetorical ammunition. As I said earlier, it's an open question whether your faith is contrary to reason or whether you have faith without good reasons or evidence. I urge you not to. I certainly don't think that I do, but that's that. I do have a couple of other subjects that I'm working on episodes about, but I don't want to promise anything because, well, you know, things change. One thing that I will say, however, is that I'm giving a lot of thought to interviewing scholars on various issues in future episodes. Not only will that mean uh, that I have to write less, but it will hopefully mean uh, that things will be a bit more interesting for the listener as well. Assuming that this possibility eventuates, I want you to get involved. Who would you like me to interview? And on what subjects? I'd like to hear your thoughts. Preferably make suggestions for people who uh, have some expertise in the area that you'd want me to interview them on. So don't suggest Richard Dawkins on faith, for example. Of course, some of the scholars that I'd like to interview may not at all be interested in being interviewed by some small-timer in New Zealand. But you never know, let's see what comes of it. Episode 44 is over. Until next time, this is your ever-faithful host, Glenn People, signing off from another episode of
0: Say hello to my little friend!